0: Good morning, church. My name is Jordan Trahan, as Bert introduced me earlier. Um, I serve as a pastoral assistant here at Crawford Avenue, and it is my joy and it is my privilege to be able to stand before you this morning and to preach God's Word. So, if you have your Bible, go on ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we'll be studying verses 1 through 13. If you're using one of the black Bibles in front of you, it's on page 957. 957. This is God's word. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, be with us now as we study your word. May your spirit give us understanding. Show us your truth and Lord, apply your truth to our lives. We are your people and we desire to become more like Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I used to have a deep, deep problem when it came to building Ikea furniture. I would get the box or the boxes that all the pieces came in. I would look at the display on the front of the box and for some reason have this false sense of confidence that this was going to be easy. The fact that I knew what these scattered pieces were supposed to look like somehow made me think that this would be a piece of cake. And without fail, I would get about an hour into the process and I would realize that I did not have a beautiful, cheap piece of furniture. Instead, what I had was a mess a mess that I would have to go back and clean up and start all over again. See, rather than carefully reading the instructions and following the directions, my self-confidence had led to quick and shoddy workmanship. I needed to pay closer attention to the directions. And there are times in our lives where we get to a point where we are surrounded by a sinful mess, a sinful mess that we created. And we have no idea how we got to that point. And we would find ourselves in a similar situation to the Corinthians, to the church at Corinth. They had a church wide mess on their hands, their their church reeked of division and sexual immorality. Some had gone so far as to participate in temple prostitution, as chapter 6, verse 18 implies. They were eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. They were participating in temple, pagan temple activities. The reality was that the Corinthian church had begun to look just like the world around them. But how did they get into such a mess? It was because of a false sense of self-confidence. As sinful and fallen creatures, we recognize that we too have a deep sense of pride, of self-confidence that tends to lead us away from God. And our goal this morning is to see what Paul has to say about this pride and what God has done about it. And we'll do this by looking at the text in four parts. Four parts. First, we'll see common ground in verses 1 through 5. Second, Israel's example in verses 6 through 11. Third, warning in verse 12. And fourth, promise in verse 13. So we begin with common ground. You'll notice that Paul begins this passage with a purpose. For I do not want you be, to be unaware. He aims to make the Corinthians aware of something. Namely, that they are on common ground with Israel, who Paul describes as our fathers. Though many in the Corinthian church were not Jewish, Paul still refers to Israel as their fathers. The reason for that is because in these verses, Paul is forming a thread, a connection between Israel and the Corinthian church. He begins this connection by saying that Israel is the fathers of the believers at Corinth. And then Paul moves, moves on. He moves to deeper spiritual connections between Israel and the Corinthians. Paul describes Israel as under the cloud, as passed through the sea, as baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, as having ate the same spiritual food and having drank the same spiritual drink. We could say that that Israel had spiritual experiences of Yahweh. They experienced the salvific benefits of being the people of Yahweh. Yahweh. They experienced the protective presence of Yahweh. They experienced the the power of Yahweh as they watched him part the Red Sea. They experienced baptism in the sense of passing through those waters and moving from Egyptian slaves to the covenanted people of God destined for the promised land. They experienced God providing food and drink for them in the wilderness. And we could even take this further and we could say that they knew who Yahweh was. They had a knowledge of Yahweh. Because they experienced Yahweh, they, they knew Yahweh. And so can you, can you see the connection that Paul is making for the Corinthians? Paul is, is making the connection impossible to commit. That's why he refers to the rock as Christ. He doesn't want them to look past this connection that they have to the people of Israel. Because the Corinthians too, they may have experienced the salvific benefits of God. They may fall under the cloud of God's church. They may have been baptized. They may even partake of the Lord's Supper but these things do not guarantee that they are living in a way that pleases God. We have to take into consideration the danger that Paul is describing. We may have had a spiritual experience of God in the past. We may have even seen God act in mighty ways. We may have been received into a church. We may have been baptized we may partake of the Lord's Supper. We may drink from the fountain of good preaching and powerful worship week in and week out. But is God pleased with us? And I ask that question not as a discouragement. I simply ask so that we can get real with ourselves and be real about ourselves. You see, I want you to, to notice the change In the subject, from verse 1 to verse 5, Paul says all, all were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink. Then you get to verse 5, where he says, Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased. Even among the people of Israel remained some who were faithful. There remain those who were faithful and led lives that were pleasing to Yahweh. And among the Corinthians were also those who were faithful and led lives that were pleasing to the Lord. And among Christians today are those who are faithful and lead lives that are pleasing to the Lord. But there is a danger that lurks in the shadow of a faithful Christian. And that danger is self-confidence. And Paul's aim aim is to make the Corinthians aware. To make them aware of why Yahweh was not pleased with Israel. To make clear that they are on the same path that Israel was on. Paul places the Corinthians on common ground with Israel. And second, Israel's example. What, What was it that the Israelites did that displeased God? What was it that led to them being overthrown in the wilderness? What was it about Israel that makes them an example for the Corinthians and for us today? Well, first, we know what it meant for them to be an example of the covenanted people of God. We saw what it meant for them to be a positive example, we could say. We saw in the first five verses what it meant for the people of God to experience the salvific benefits of God. We saw what it meant for the people of God to experience God himself, to know God. They also serve as a negative example. Look at what Paul says. These things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. What was it that the Israelites did that displeased Yahweh? They desired evil. Even though they had been led out of Egypt, even though they had seen the power of Yahweh on display, even though they had received provision from Yahweh, they still turned away from Yahweh and desired evil. The language here is actually kind of goes along the lines of that we might not be cravers of evil as they were cravers of evil. And if you have cross-references in your Bible, you might notice that there is a reference to Numbers 11.4. Numbers 11.4, which is about Israel complaining and begging for the meat that they once ate in Egypt. Israel no longer wanted what Yahweh provided for them. Instead, they wanted to go back to have the meat that they once ate. And here is where I think Paul brings the Corinthians face to face with their issue. The issue is not the fact that they were eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. The issue was is not even that they were participating in activities at the pagan temple. The issue was their desires. The Corinthians had become so conceited and self-confident that they thought they were above their evil desires. The Corinthians had a a confidence in their own knowledge, and this confidence had had blinded them to the evil desires that they were satisfying by going to the temple, by eating that pagan food. What knowledge was it that that gave them such confidence? Confidence. This knowledge is found in chapter 8, verse 4. Chapter 8, verse 4. There Paul says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. So you can see the line of thought that the Corinthians had. Because I know that idols are not real, because I know the Christian God is the only true God, I have freedom to do what I want. Namely, I can eat this idol food. The Corinthians had become so confident in themselves and in their knowledge that they thought, I would never recognize these idols as gods. Therefore, it's okay if I participate in these acts of idol worship because I would never stoop so low as to actually worship them. But Paul reminds them of Israel. Israel had an experience of Yahweh. They knew Yahweh. After the people passed through the Red Sea, Moses says in Exodus 14.31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. if you read your Old Testament, we know that their hearts still desired evil and that they would abandon Yahweh almost every chance that they got. And so Paul lists out a few ways that they satisfied their evil desires. And Paul does so. He does so by listing out four prohibitions. They're right there in the text. First, first, do not be idolaters, as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Paul quotes directly from Exodus 32, six. See, in that the people of Israel, they had watched Moses make his way up the mountain to hear from Yahweh and to receive the Ten Commandments. And as they were waiting for Moses to come back down, they decided to build an idol, They wanted an idol to worship. And so Aaron had them bring all of their jewelry to be melted down, and it was made into a golden calf. And listen to what the people of Israel say about this idol. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Israel affirmed their experience. They had experienced being brought out of Egypt. But this simple knowledge was not enough. This, this experience was not enough. They still desired to worship idols rather than Yahweh. And worship that idol they did. They made offerings to the idol. But you'll notice that the offerings that they made to the idol is not what Paul draws the Corinthians' attention to he draws their attention to actually the second part of the verse in Exodus. To how they ate, drank, and rose up to play. You see, the Corinthians would affirm that they were not making offerings to these idols. And Paul would agree. But for Paul, idol worship was not limited to burnt offerings. It was not limited to ritual, formal ritual practice. It also involved the everyday acts of life, like eating and drinking. Even such ordinary tasks like eating and drinking have a deeper meaning in certain contexts. For for example, for example, when you are at the grocery store, you might see some good-looking ribeyes. They might be on sale. You throw them in your cart, you check out, you get home, and you fire up the grill. You and your family, you sit down and y'all enjoy some good steaks. What's the meaning in that? You're just enjoying some good steaks. Now say that in another scenario, it's someone's birthday. You decide you want to grill steaks for this person's birthday. You go to the grocery store, the Lord answers your prayer, you find some steaks on sale... You throw them in the cart, you check out, you get home, and you fire at the grill. You and everyone you invited sit down and enjoy some good steaks. But what's the meaning in this scenario? These aren't just steaks that you found and enjoyed. No, these these steaks symbolize something deeper now. They symbolize the celebration of that person who has a birthday. You enjoy your stake in honor of that person. And Paul is showing the Corinthians that their eating meat is not a bad thing. But he wants them to be aware of the deeper meaning that their actions convey. They are participating in the celebration of this idol whose food that they eat. So Paul tells them, do not be idolaters. And second, Paul says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. In cultures throughout ancient history, there is this connection between idolatry and sexual immorality. They're really just two sides of the same coin. For example, in the, in the pagan temple at Corinth, we know that there were temple prostitutes. And this was actually a very common practice. So, to worship the gods of these temples was to not only make offerings to these gods, but also to join in the sexual immorality that took place in these temples. And Israel had a similar experience. In, in Numbers chapter 25, the, the men of Israel become sexually immoral with the women of Moab. And it's because of their sexual immorality that they are led to idolatry. They begin to worship the gods of Moab. There was a, a connection between sexual, and, and sexual immorality and idolatry for Israel. And it goes back to the evil desires. There's a connection for the Corinthians, and there's a connection for us today between these things, and it is our evil desires. It goes back to the fact that we want to be satisfied by something that is not God. It goes back to the fact that we have cravings, and we gratify these cravings with something that is not God. Paul tells the Corinthians to not be idolaters, but they are satisfying their evil cravings with idolatrous meat. That is idolatry. Paul tells the Corinthians not to be sexually immoral, but they satisfy their evil cravings with temple prostitutes. That is idolatry. The Corinthians may have thought that their actions were meaningless, they're just eating. Their pride and their self-confidence convinced them that they were not being sinful, but that they were exercising their Christian freedom. But Paul gets into their hearts and their desires and says, no, these actions actually show what you were trying to satisfy your soul with. And then the third one, Paul prohibits the Corinthians from testing Christ. Christ says, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Throughout the Old Testament, we see this idea of Israel testing God. Specifically, Paul is alluding to the incident in Numbers 21, where the Israelites spoke out against God, criticizing, criticizing Him because of their lack of food and water. Now, ironically, God was providing food and water. He just was not providing the food that they wanted. Remember, they craved the meat that they once had in Egypt. And they're complaining to God that they're not getting the meat that they want, even as God provides them with the food that they need. And so consequently, the Lord sent fiery serpents that destroyed a number of them. And the connection is still there between between Israel's testing and their sinful cravings. It was not necessarily the the complaining itself that, that tested God. Rather, it was that their complaining was rooted in the fact that they were continuously dissatisfied with God. Their continuous dissatisfaction with God is what tested God. And Paul's concern for the Corinthians is that they may be testing Christ through their insistence to participate in idolatrous activities. Israel insisted on their own way. They insisted to have meat that they once had in Egypt. They received the manna that Yahweh provided, but it was not what they wanted. In the Corinthians, they have insisted that they will participate in idolatrous activities. But if you remember, such insisting does not line up with love for God. Just a few chapters later in chapter 13, Paul says that love does not insist on its own way. To do so, to insist on one's own way rather than being satisfied with what what God provides is perilous. The self confidence that Israel had, which thought that they knew better than God Himself, was also present in the Corinthians. They thought that they knew better, but really they were blinded to the possibility that they may be testing the God that they claim to love. And in fourth, Paul prohibits the Corinthians from grumbling. This, this dissatisfaction with God that we've been talking about, it can, it can reveal itself through disobedience, like idolatry and sexual immorality. It can reveal itself as, as testing God. It can also be revealed in the attitude of a person. Grumbling characterizes the entire wilderness experience of Israel. It was their grumbling that tested the patience of Yahweh. It was their grumbling that led them to division under the leadership of Moses. It was their grumbling that led them to crave evil. Israel's false sense of of confidence manifested itself in the form of their grumbling. It showed how they thought that they were better than Yahweh, even better than Moses. You see, this grumbling is in reference to an incident Again, in Numbers, where the people grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Their grumbling actually leads them to say, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And when we read that, we want to cry out, Israel, are you blind? Can you not see what God has done for you? Can you not see what God is leading you toward? He's taking you to the promised land. Open your eyes. Why would you want to go back to slavery? It's because they had evil cravings. We cannot underestimate the power that a simple craving has. For the people of Israel, their simple craving for evil led to idolatrous actions, it led to sexual immorality. It led them to the the precipice of testing God. And it instilled in them an attitude that refused to be satisfied with God himself. And their pride and their self-confidence stood little chance against Yahweh himself. For in a single day, 23,000 fell. Some of them were destroyed by serpents. Some of them were destroyed by the destroyer. Israel's false confidence led them to destruction. And Paul tells the Corinthians that these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. See, Paul repeats what he said, right? He repeats what he said in verse 6. And he does so to emphasize the need to learn from Israel's example. Why? So that it is not repeated. the Corinthians Paul has interpreted and applied the Old Testament scriptures to the situation of the Corinthians he has exposited the text and applied it to his people and as the people as Paul describes this on whom the end of the ages has come Paul sets the example for us We can look to the Old Testament and see how God related to his people and how his people related back to him. We can see such examples as all these that Paul has listed and we can apply what is found in these examples to our own situations. The Corinthians needed to see the example of Israel's pride and self-confidence so that they could come face to face with their own. So Paul leads the Corinthians to ask, what are we supposed to do? And Paul applies these Old Testament stories through warning, which is the third part of today. In verse 12 he says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. All of Paul's exposition in chapter 10 has led to this point take heed. And Paul specifies, he specifies who needs to take heed. It is those who think that they stand. It seems some of the Corinthians thought too highly of themselves. They thought that because they possessed some knowledge that there is no God but the Christian God and had some sort of spiritual experience, they thought that because of this, they were invincible, that they knew better. Far be it from them that they would fall and be humiliated. They would say, I know that there is one God. I would never worship idols. And yet, you participate in idolatrous activities. I know that idols aren't real yet you insist on eating food that has been sacrificed to those idols. Paul is warning the Corinthians that their pride, that their self-confidence has not placed them on a mountaintop. It has placed them instead on a tight rope where they are surrounded by opportunities to fall from such a great height. There was a a study that Dr. Howard Hendricks did um, some years ago. He wanted to find patterns among pastors who had experienced moral failing. And in this study, he interviewed 246 men who had failed morally as pastors. And in this study, there were several similarities, but there was one attitude, there was one common denominator that each of those 246 men had a prideful self-confidence quote without exception each of the 246 had been convinced that sort of fall would never happen to me there is a danger that lurks in the shadows of not just pastors but every christian's life the danger of self-confidence Paul recognized such danger and tells us to heed, take heed of the example of Israel. And when we take heed of Israel's example, we come to a realization. We realize that our cravings may seek the satisfaction of different things, but they still seek the satisfaction of evil. And when we come to this realization, we we are humbled before the scriptures. And we look at the scriptures now as if, as if looking into a mirror. And as we do so, we can't help but to feel the reality that we are no better. We see that we are not satisfied with the goodness of God. We see that we have, we have tried to satisfy those cravings with everything but the one God that will satisfy. So when we read the Scriptures, when we read what Paul is saying here like that, we can only ask, Paul, what are we to do? And Paul responds, keep reading. He gives us a promise. And this is our fourth and final point. He says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. The temptation to worship idols was and is not a new temptation. As Solomon asked in Ecclesiastes, Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It it has been already in the ages before us. The reason that the temptation for idolatry is not new is because it remains the same. It may change, it may adapt according to the times and according to the culture, but at its foundation remains the same evil cravings that refuse to be satisfied with the goodness of God. We may not be tempted to gather all of our jewelry together and create a calf, a golden calf, but we may be tempted to bow down before our bank accounts To satisfy the cravings of greed, we may not be tempted to join in the cultic prostitution, but we may be tempted by the ritualistic practice of gazing upon pornography to satisfy that craving for sexual immorality. The idols that we are tempted to worship are not new idols, they simply have changed with the times. It's important to understand why Paul mentions that there is no temptation that is not common to man. It's good for us to recognize this. It is good to see that you, where you are at, where I am at, where we are at, there is no new temptation that is not common to man. whatever idols that we are tempted to bow before what whatever cravings that we have are not new they are not new to god and they are not new to man and so as we wander through the wilderness as we make our way to the celestial city we recognize that the people of god throughout history have walked the same path they have faced the same temptations they have endured the same trials And there is one truth that rings loud across the scope of history. God is faithful. God is faithful to the ones he calls his own. Even when the people of Israel grumbled against him in the wilderness, God remained faithful. Even when they tested his patience, God remained faithful. Even when they were sexually immoral, God remained faithful, and he fulfilled his promise to bring them to the land of Canaan. This is the promise that Paul reminds the Corinthians of. The promise was not, God has saved you, so do better. Paul doesn't say, take heed and be better. He says, look to God and see that he is faithful even when you are not. The way to protect yourself against the danger of self-confidence is to recognize that God is faithful. And notice next what Paul says. He says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. It was not that the temptation to eat idle food was so strong that the Corinthians just could not withstand it. Rather, they were not tapping into the resource that they had to withstand, God's own faithfulness to them. That is usually how temptation works. It seeks to blind us to the truth of God's faithfulness. It lures us into the trap of self-confidence where we think we can handle this. And we find ourselves in the blink of an eye falling from the mountaintop into the mess of our own sinfulness. But God is faithful. Paul reminds us that God helps his people. He not only does not let us be tempted beyond our ability, but he also provides the way of escape. You'll notice in verse 14 that Paul does eventually give them a command to follow, to flee. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. A wise Christian is not lured by self-confidence when facing temptation. Instead, they flee. And this echoes Paul's previous call in chapter 6, verse 18, where he tells the Corinthians to flee from sexual immorality. But in our flight from idolatry and sexual immorality, we need direction, we need an escape plan. So let me offer three things to flee to first, flee to the scriptures. Flee to the abundance of examples we have in the Scriptures just as Paul has done in our text this morning. The Scriptures act as a mirror as James tells us in the letter, in his letter. The Scriptures will give us the clearest reflection of our innermost cravings. It is in the Scriptures where we will see our own sinfulness and all of its ugliness. It is also where we will see God's faithfulness and all of its beauty. And as we study the scriptures and as we put them into practice, we will come to better understand how faithful God is despite our sinful cravings. Second, flee to the faithfulness of God. When temptation comes, be encouraged. Be encouraged God is faithful. In his faithfulness, God provides what is needed to make your escape. There will be a false sense of confidence that will come to us. We will be tempted to think that we are above this temptation, that we would never give in to such temptation. But if we desire holiness, we must not underestimate the cravings of evil. Instead, we must flee, flee to the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God is like a fortress for his people. And if we desire to escape temptation, we must make our home in that fortress. And third, flee to the cross. The cross is where all the faithful acts of God in history find their culmination. It is at the cross where the promises of God find their yes and amen. And it is at the cross that the faithfulness of God shines most brightly. It is at the cross where we find escape from the judgment that we are due for our sinfulness. It is at the cross where we gaze upon our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who did not crave evil who did not bow down in idolatry, who did not indulge in sexual immorality, who did not test God, nor did He grumble, even as He carried the cross to the place where He would be executed upon it. And He promises those who believe in Him that He is with us and that He is faithful to us. And so Paul has given the Corinthians and us a promise. A promise that God is faithful and that he will provide the way of escape. When we find ourselves tempted to be satisfied with something other than God, we have an escape plan. And in those times where we don't carry out that escape plan, the times where we find ourselves in a mess that are sense of confidence has led to we can have hope there was hope for the Corinthians and there is hope for us today it is in those moments when we must grasp this promise even tighter because we can rest in the joy of having such a promise for God and his faithfulness will preserve us until the end Let me conclude with this. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, the characters Christian and Hopeful fall asleep in the giant despair's yard. The giant captures them, throws them in his dungeon and doubting castle, where he mercilessly beats them night in and night out. And Christian asks Hopeful. Listen to what he asks. Brother, what shall we do? The life that we now live is miserable. For my part, I know not whether it's best to live thus or die out of hand. My soul chooseth strangling rather than life, and the grave is more easy for me than this dungeon. Shall we be ruled by the giant? But one morning... Christian remembers that he has a key. He says, What a fool am I thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty. I have a key in my bosom called promise that will I am persuaded open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said hopeful, That's good news. Good brother, pluck it out of thy bosom and try. Then Christian pulled it out of his bosom and began to try at the dungeon door, whose bolt gave back, and the door flew open with ease. And Christian and hopeful both came out. In the midst of temptation, we have a key called promise. It found in Christ. Let's pray. God, you are faithful. Lord, as we study your scriptures, as we look at the examples that you have given us in your word, Lord, we can see clearly that you are faithful. God, we ask that you would grant us desire to be faithful to you, that you would lead us by your spirit to grow in knowledge of your word, but also in knowledge of you. Lord, let us cling to your faithfulness. Lord, we are creatures who crave evil. And Lord, we come before you asking that you would help us because you have promised that you would help us. So Lord, fulfill your promise to us, we ask. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.